0: 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, and into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out of in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it might become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to them, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, "'Go sacrifice to your God within the land.' But Moses said it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abdominal to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also, and did not let the people go.
1: Amen. Thank you so much for reading that. We are looking this morning at the plagues of Egypt, which take place from Exodus chapter 7 to Exodus chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at them over the next several weeks. But let me, before we even dive in and honor of the Halloween season, let's consider a spooky story. One day, in a far-off land, something unusual began to happen. The river turned to blood, and it wasn't simply die, and it wasn't something any of us could explain. The waters literally turned to blood. Then, about a week later, frogs invaded the land. Not just a few frogs— Like you might see during the wet season, swarms of frogs invaded every house and every place. And this was followed by swarms of gnats and flies. Even dark magic couldn't replicate these swarms. Then things took a turn for the worst. See, swarms of bugs are annoying, but next the livestock died. Boils covered everyone's skin, and hail rained down to destroy property and crops, and locusts finished off what was left. And then the land experienced a deep darkness. You ever experienced the sort of darkness where you could literally feel it upon you? And all of that was just the beginning. All of these phenomena were unexplainable. Something supernatural happened. And the truly spooky thing is that this isn't a ghost story that you would tell by a campfire, nor is this the plot to the latest thriller in theaters. This is the historical account of the plagues in the book of Exodus. I often tell folks that we do truly live in a spooky world. God brought ten supernatural plagues, acts of judgment on the nation of Egypt, and again, over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at these plagues together. We've been journeying through the book of Exodus. We find ourselves with the nation of Israel as slaves in the land of Egypt. And at the center of this story is a conflict between Moses and Pharaoh. And God had promised that the people would be let go. Look back at chapter 5. Look at this. All will back in chapter 5, after Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And in light of the plagues, Pharaoh's question here becomes truly haunting. Look at this. This is Exodus 5, verse 2. He says, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let the people Go. The first thing we need to see is that this question frames the whole passage. Pharaoh asked, Who is Yahweh? He asked that, and friends, he is about to find out, isn't he? Who is the Lord? If you look in your Bible, you might see some small caps over the name Lord. That signals that the name of God is being used. He says, who is Yahweh whom the Hebrews claim to worship? And why should I listen to him? And friends, Pharaoh is going to get his answer and he's not going to like it. In fact, Exodus 7 to 10 is an answer to Pharaoh's question in chapter 5. Here's the point. The plagues are God's answer to Pharaoh's question. Who is Yahweh? He's the one who sends these supernatural wonders on the people. And repeated throughout this chapter is that God is going to make sure Pharaoh, all of Egypt, and us know who he is. Let's look at this refrain throughout these chapters. Chapter 7, verse 17. Look at this. "'Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood.'" When Pharaoh promises to let them go after the frogs invade, we see this, chapter 8, verse 10, "'And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God.'" The magicians declare at the sight of the gnats, chapter 8, verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And during the plague of hail, chapter 9, verse 16, God says this, but for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Through the plagues, God is revealing himself to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and to us who would study this now so many years later. This is the answer to the question, who is Yahweh? And God is revealing himself to Pharaoh in response to this question. And he does so in a really interesting way by contrasting himself with Pharaoh. God contrasts himself with Pharaoh, and we see three truths about God that come our way through a contrast and a comparison with Pharaoh. And here's the first thing we see. We see that Yahweh is God and Pharaoh was not. That might seem really elementary, but this is so important to these people. If one message is clearly displayed in the plagues, it is God's godness. There's a seminary word for you, godness, right? What sets God apart from us. He turns water into blood. He sends darkness over the lands. He commissions armies of frogs and gnats and boils and locusts, and he calls them to retreats. God's power and sovereignty and greatness are all over this passage. And the people in Egypt would have given worship to Pharaoh. And God's here saying, friends, Pharaoh is a false God. And before many of us kind of, we, we often mock the idea that the Egyptians would worship Pharaoh. Uh, their ruler let me just say we've got an election in a few weeks and we will see all kinds of government worship occurring in the next couple weeks and here is the declaration that pharaoh is nothing more than a puny god That no matter how great and powerful a government may be, it is nothing compared to the king of kings and the lord of lords. He has no true power or greatness compared to God. Pharaoh has nothing on the God of the universe. But God is not only displaying his greatness over Pharaoh, he's even displaying his greatness over Pharaoh's gods. You may have remembered growing up in school, you begin to read a lot about some of the uh, the Egyptians had a god for everything. Right, And if you read the commentators, they'll point out that these plagues are actually a direct judgment on many of the Egyptian gods. For example, the the Egyptians had a spirit of the Nile they called Hopi. And the lifeblood of Egypt, they really worshipped the Nile River because it's literally a, a river in the middle of the desert. It was their hope and their lifeblood, and now their lifeblood literally became a river of blood. We even saw there's a goddess named Heket, which is responsible for fertility. And this is how they depict her. Let's look at her. Gorgeous, right? This is Heket. She is the Egyptian god of fertility, and she is a woman with a frog's head. This is not the way you want to depict the woman in your life. Right, You don't want to go there. And, and we see, though, what's interesting is what does he then send to turn against the people of Egypt? A swarm of frogs. And, of course, the idea of her being the goddess of infertility is really interesting in light of what's going to happen in the Passover later when he will bring affliction upon the Egyptian children. I could go on, but they had gods of the dust. They even had the chief and greatest god of the Egyptians was the god named Ra, who was the god of the sun. And we see that all of them are idols compared to Yahweh. He blocks out the sun. He rules over creation. He is unchallenged and unrivaled in his rule. God is the one who preserves life, not the Nile River. God is the one who rules and reigns over all things. Just as the passage repeats, these plagues are so that all the world might know that Yahweh is the one true God. That God is God, and Pharaoh and his idols are nothing. The plagues echo the message of 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 26. We read this, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Consider that, friends, all of the Egyptians, it looks like everything is falling apart around them. The chief source of their economy is gone. It's full of blood. And yet we see the messages that God rules and reigns. He's in control of it all. And we can look to him for our trust. But there is more happening here. Did you notice that during the first two plagues that were read this morning, the magicians... Of, of Egypt's court, of Pharaoh's court, were able to mimic Moses' sign. It says they did it by secret arts. Let's look at that. Exodus chapter 7, verse 22, with the first plague, water into blood, but the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their secret arts. And this is what caused Pharaoh to harden his heart against Moses. And then chapter 8, verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So they're able to, by their secret arts, kind of mimic some things. And then we read in the third plague, uh, Exodus 8, verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So in other words, we see this sort of battle occurring between the power of God and the secret arts of the magicians. And, and I want us to be careful because when we hear magician, we think Harry Houdini or maybe Chris Angel, sort of some sleight of hand business, right? These people were not doing sleight of hand. I believe they were using real demonic power to do signs and wonders, We need to be aware that just as there are good supernatural powers in the world, there are also evil forces at work as well. It's so interesting that you even talk to very secular Americans who don't really have any sort of um, religious belief, aren't really in church. And they'll talk all the time about guardian angels. But then when you start to talk about demons, they're like, well, that's kind of weird. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, well, if there's a such thing as guardian angels, I can promise you there probably are are, are are extremes on the other side, right? Of demons and and evil things in this world. Paul actually talks about spiritual warfare, and he says this: Ephesians chapter six, verse twelve. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need to recognize that there are evil, demonic forces at work in this world. And let me tell you, they're not, it's not as if they're only focused on Halloween, so many people are so worried about, well, people are dressing up as ghouls and goblins. The kids dressed up as ghouls and goblins are the least of your worries. <laughs> these, these forces are at work every other day of the year through signs and wonders, and they're often cunning and more careful than we can imagine. While the gods of the Egyptians were worthless idols, many of them were likely real demonic spirits. Idolatry can, can be fake and made up and something in somebody's head, but it also can be the worship of demons. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul talks about this in reference to the pagans sacrificing to their idols. So, as believers, we need to strike a balance. There are some folks who see a demon under every rock, that they forget to get gas and run out of gas, and that was the demon that caused them to run out of gas. No, you forgot to fill up on gas. But I think as Americans living in the 21st century, we're prone to the other extreme, to never see any devils at all, to let the world think that the problem is simply individuals, not spirits at work behind individuals. Are we aware that there are forces of darkness at work in the world, in false religions? Do we recognize that the hope and the weapons of our warfare is God and his truth? Do we recognize that we must stand firm and know God's word to stand and speak, to stand and pray, and to stand firm in faithfulness, recognizing what the plagues have made so clear to us. The plagues make clear that the magicians with their demonic power and Pharaoh with his worldly governmental power are nothing compared to the power of God. None of them can stop The Lord who made the heavens. And so, so many of us are really worried about the power of of demons and of dark forces. Some people let let just the, the, the potential of being spooked and taken over by these things cause them to just stop living their life. They're so consumed with it. And friends, that would be exactly what Satan would love for you to do. To allow the reality of his existence to cause you to stop doing things for his glory. And so what you need to do is hold fast to God and his word and know that he is the one who is supreme and sovereign over all. And we must stop and simply marvel at the glory and the power and the godness of God, (laughs) that he is able to declare and overcome the greatest powers in the world. But God is not simply shown to be great here, we see more of his character on display. We see a second contrast. We see this, Yahweh is just and Pharaoh was wicked. Yahweh is just and Pharaoh was wicked. Look back in chapter 7, Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, and we'll see this previewing the plagues. It says this, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my children, the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Do you see it? These signs and wonders were acts of judgment on Pharaoh and the whole nation of Israel. Look down at verse 24 of chapter 7 in reference to the water, to to blood plague, and we see this. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. We see that Pharaoh alone isn't impacted by this. The whole nation, imagine you go to the water fountain, we don't really go down to the river much to drink anymore, do we? But you go to the water fountain, you put your little thing up there, and blood starts pouring out, and you're like... It's a rough Monday, isn't it? And these folks are trying to just get something to drink. And there's blood everywhere. You can't drink that. Because in one way or another, the whole nation was responsible for the ongoing slavery of the Hebrews in Egypt. And when God judges a nation, we may all feel the pain in one way or another. And we need to recognize this was not just a bad week for the, for the Egyptians. Friends, these supernatural events happened over a lengthy period of time. Verse 25 of chapter 7, we see this. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So the Nile's destroyed. Frogs then begin to enter houses. There's gnats and locusts that destroy crops. Livestock dies. Darkness covers the land. And we don't know exactly how long it lasted, but we need to assume there is space between these things because we're told at least between the first and second there were space. And it's likely that all of Egypt is impacted. His nation is in ruins. And yet, look what Pharaoh does. Verse 23 of chapter 7. I love this. Look at this. Seeing the blood and the water, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. <laughs> A guy in high-up elected office only caring about himself? No. So unrealistic, right? What a wicked guy. He only really begins to care when the frogs end up in his bed. (laughs) He doesn't care about the others in the nation. And when a moment of respite comes, he says, I don't know what the problem was. And he just begins to ignore it. This only amplified that after each of the plagues, Pharaoh says, I'm going to let the Israelites go, only to go back on his word. We've never had people make us promises and not come through on them, right? It's never occurred. And we hear the refrain after each plague that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He promises ten times, I'm going to let y'all go. But God is not like Pharaoh because God actually goes through with what he says. God promised to bring the plagues, and he did it. And while God wants Moses to talk Pharaoh into letting them go for three days, God is going to ultimately set them free. And I believe Pharaoh knows this. Look at how Moses describes the plagues. Look at chapter 8, verse 29. After the plagues of the flies come upon them, we see this. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go out to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh, prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarm of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. You see it? Pharaoh was a cheat. He dealt deceitfully. He thought he could outsmart Moses and even outsmart God. So he lies. And this is contrasted with the God of truth who was keeping his word. Pharaoh, even as Egypt is in shambles tries to keep some hold on Israel, trying to argue with them, going, well, if you'll just leave your children here, leave your flocks here while you go out into the wilderness, if you'll only go so far and not come back. He wants some collateral against them. Yet Pharaoh misses the point and continues to not listen to the Lord, but continues to rebel against him. And I love this over in chapter 9, verse 16. Look at this. God says to Pharaoh, but for this purpose I have raised you up. You may ask yourselves, why in the world would God allow such a wicked person to be in power? Look at this. But for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show that my name, to show my to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. God's whole purpose and plan was to display through Pharaoh's hardness of heart the greatness of his power and the reality of his justice. God may give wicked people a place of authority in order to knock them down a few notches in his grand plan and purpose, but Pharaoh just continues to exalt himself. He's not going to admit he's wrong. And judgment continues to follow. And God even provided a way of safety and rescue for some of the wor- from some of the worst of the Egyptian plagues. Some of Egypt even began to get respite, but not Pharaoh's house. Look how the passage continues, chapter 9, verse 18. Look at this. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the the word of the Lord from among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into, into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field." Did you see it? Even Pharaoh's servants at a point begin to kind of go, I think we need to listen to that Moses guy. and <laughs> start predicting blood, start predicting frogs, gnats, lions, tigers, bears. Oh, my, I'm listening to that guy. I'm getting my stuff inside. I just bought this new cow. And, man, I'm not letting that get dented up, right? Bringing this inside. And they feared the word of the Lord, and they were spared and kept alive. Even pagans, people who have no belief in this God at all, could do the right thing when push came to shove. Even Pharaoh's servants recognized what they needed to do. Now, whether that was done in true faith or to save their own skin, that could probably be debated. But even his servants feared the word of the Lord and paid attention. But Pharaoh and his house continued to reject and receive the full weight of the plague. At its root, Pharaoh did not fear the Lord, and he was in wicked rebellion. And this is how God proves himself to be just in the plague. Some of us may see the plagues and think, man, this is really extreme. But consider the hardness and the wickedness of Pharaoh's hearts to reject him, to continue abusing the people of Israel even after warning and warning comes and goes. These only seem extreme if you see sin as small. But friends, sin is a big deal. The plagues show us how serious rebellion against God is. How big of a deal God considers how we relate to him and how we treat others. We all know the two greatest commandments, right? Love God and love neighbor, right? Love God and love neighbor. And they're the two greatest commandments. And then we get shocked that great justice may come when we break his two greatest commandments when we don't love our neighbor and love our God as we ought. And so in the plagues, we see Yahweh is just. He is bringing just judgment on the Egyptians for the way they not only were rebelling against God, but the way they were treating others. And Pharaoh continues in his wickedness. But the good news, there is good news in this passage. It isn't all wrath and justice. God is also shown to be good and kind. In the reality, one of the last things we see on display in the plagues is this, that Yahweh is merciful while Pharaoh was cruel. Yahweh was merciful while Pharaoh was cruel. I don't think I have to do much more to prove to you that Pharaoh was wicked. He's a liar, right? A selfish monarch. He stayed up in his palace while his nation suffered. Pharaoh even offers, we're going to look more at this uh, in the weeks to come, but he even offers a false confession of sin, going, hey, I did wrong, and I'm going to fix it. I'm so sorry, I'm going to fix it. And then, of course, nothing happens. Look over chapter 9 and 10, the seventh and the eighth plague, with the plague of the hail, chapter 9, verse 27. Look at this. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You shall stay no longer. Then verse 34, we read this. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. You see that? He says, I'm totally wrong, and I'm going to fix it. And then the problem goes away, and he doesn't do anything. Then the plagues of the locusts chapter 10 verse 7 Then Pharaoh's servant said to him how long shall Moses when he says he be a snare talking about Moses be a snare to us let the man go and let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined it's fascinating his servants are pleading with him and it arrives on deaf ears chapter 10 verse 16 Then Pharaoh hastily calls Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. You see that? He keeps making these promises, and he keeps offering these false apologies, only for nothing to happen. Pharaoh was cruel, and we're actually going to consider next week, we're actually going to look a whole lot at Pharaoh and his rebellion here, and the fact that at the end of it all, there's some haunting words there, right? He doesn't care for the Hebrews. He doesn't care for his fellow Egyptians, even for his own servants. He hardens his heart. He makes false confessions and false promises. And the plagues, the ninth plague ends with the haunting words, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Even after seeing the power and the judgment of God all about him, we see him buckled down at the end of the ninth plague, and God says, okay, that's what you want. Here, have it. And a thunderous tenth plague was on its way. Yet in the midst of it all, God is shown to be incredibly merciful. First, consider just his patience, He didn't have to offer nine plagues with a chance to repent. Remember, he flooded the world before. He easily could have easily caused just a little flood in Egypt and took care of that. He could have wiped them all out. But God is far more patient than we often readily recognize. And notice that beginning at the fourth plague, something incredible begins to happen. Back in chapter 8, verse 22, look at this. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. And you know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. At the fourth plague, God begins to explicitly protect his people from the plagues. The land of Goshen, that was sort of the the Hebrew neighborhood, was spared completely. They didn't get, you ever noticed, you ever been somewhere and you've seen, man, everywhere got rain, but that little spot. Friends, all of it, they didn't get any gnats, they didn't get any flies. The hail came and completely missed this neighborhood. They had Everyone else had darkness, but these folks had power and lights. You begin to notice something incredible. There's something divine on their side. God's divine mercy was for his chosen people. He set apart his nation and he preserves them and keeps them through judgment. And God even allows the Egyptians to get in on it who placed their faith in him and who feared his word. See the incredible grace and mercy and kindness of God. God shows mercy and grace and showers them on those who trust in him. The plagues answer Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh? Who is the God of the Bible? Who is the God that these people serve? And we see that he is God not Pharaoh or the Egyptian gods. Ra has no power because God can turn out the sun like that. He made it. He controls it. He can do what he wants with it. Yahweh is just, unlike Pharaoh who was wicked. I remember reading when we were back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 18, with all going on with Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham famously says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Right? And I want you to know, whatever may seem unfair and broken and, and completely unjust in your life, let me promise you, God has a day of judgment sets. And when everything falls, when all the dominoes have fallen, everything will be made right. The judge of all the earth will do what's right, even if worldly courts and governments get it wrong. And they often do and often will. God's judgment never gets it wrong. And Yahweh is merciful. Unlike Pharaoh who hunkered down in his rebellion and cruelty, God displayed immense and incredible mercy and patience and kindness. And God would later repeat and summarize the message of the plagues later in the book of Exodus. He would powerfully reveal himself to Moses and say this, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed to him, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness, keeping his steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I mean, let me bring this down home as to what does this have to do with me? You may be asking, what, what is this about for me? First, let me tell you this. First and foremost, there really is nothing more important than knowing who God is. The answer to Pharaoh's question, he really did ask the most important question in the wrong attitude, didn't he? Who is the Lord? And and he, he did it in order to go. I think I can beat him up and conquer him. But really, the question itself isn't bad. Who is the one true God? And there's nothing more important than studying his character and his works and his ways, not simply to know about him, but to know him deeply and to be in relationship with him through his word. Friends, if you've been going through your life just knowing about God, that's simply not enough. You've got to know Him and encounter Him, and He has revealed Himself in His Word. Second, this is important to us because we need to see the plagues as a warning to us. You think these are terrifying. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> there, the wrath and judgment of God are terrifying. And the Bible says that one day all of us will stand before this God, the God of the plagues, and give an account for our life. And that the plagues are pretty tame compared to his raw power and judgment. Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Friends, God has been shouting at you. From the moment you were born, just as he has been shouting at the Egyptians to get your attention. And yet so many of us have forsaken, thought, I know better. I can do this. I don't need him. And friends, all of us by nature deserve the punishment of God for our sins and our rebellion. But God has made a way. For all of us to be forgiven, there is good news in the midst of it. We can be like the Israelites who trusted by faith in God's promise. We can be like these Egyptians who kind of piggybacked in, fearing the word of God over the words of their wicked ruler. There is good news here. Through the plagues, God is pointing us forward toward the gospel. Let me tell you something. The nation of Israel was weak. They couldn't save themselves from Egypt, and God had to let them learn that lesson the hard way. They couldn't save themselves. They even had rejected Moses. And friends, they were just as big a sinners as the Egyptians around them were. Don't begin to think that God saved the Israelites because they were good and the Egyptians were bad. No, 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 friends. They all deserved to have been caught up in those plagues. In fact, Israel might even be worse off because they were the chosen nation and should have known better, yet rejected God in the midst of it. But despite their incredible sin, God displayed incredible mercy. God saved them through judgment, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the coming promise of Jesus Christ alone. And God saves us the same way. See, God sent Jesus, his son, into the world, and he lived the perfect sinless life that none of us could. And he willingly went to a cross to bear on himself the judgment, the plagues that we deserve for our rebellion against him. And that right now, God, for all of us, has chosen us to be here to hear his message, and God has two hands up. With one, He is with patience and loving kindness, holding back the judgments and the plagues that all of us deserve that are far worse than anything God brought on Egypt. And he's holding those back because we're here, we're alive. We've not come before him in judgment. And with the other hand, God is extending out mercy and love, and come unto Jesus and be saved. Stop trying to trust in your own good works. Look to him by faith and be saved. And the Bible says one day God's going to drop both hands. He'll no longer withhold his judgment and his wrath, and there'll be no more opportunity to take hold of his hand of mercy. And the question to answer today is, if God dropped both hands, where would you be? Would you have taken hold of his mercy by faith, or will you be left to bear his plagues of judgment alone? Today, some of you need to find your refuge in Jesus. He's died on the cross and he's risen again on the third day so that you, by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus, can have everlasting life, can be rescued from the wrath and the judgment of God and be brought into a relationship with God. And today you can do that. You can pray where you are. You can come forward in our time of response. However you need to respond, you can do that and Jesus will meet you where you are. And he will prove faithful to his promise, unlike Pharaoh. For others, we simply need to hear the invitation of the prophet Isaiah to behold our God. To see how great and incredible and powerful, because the God we serve is the God of the plagues. The God we serve is the God who not only could send darkness, but pull it away. We serve an incredible God, and with a renewed vision of who he is, we get a renewed vision of who we are and what we are called to do. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, we come beholding your greatness and goodness and power and might and judgment, all of these things together And we behold your greatness. And the Bible says that by beholding who you are, we are more conformed into your image. We're more conformed into being who we've been made to be by beholding who you are. So, Lord, I pray for the first time today, somebody is beholding not only the the fearful thing of your wrath and judgment, but also the greatness of your mercy and kindness in Jesus. I pray that they would now flee to you, come to you in faith. And I pray for us that are your people, we would be renewed by this vision of a big God that's bigger than government. Lord, that's bigger than than whatever may be going on in the world and who holds the world in his hand and who is working all things together for his good and for his glory. May we respond to this message as as you'd be pleased to with whatever we need to do, whatever commitments we need to make. Lord, may we together behold the goodness and the greatness of our God. Let me ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Heavenly places, and we'll be able to know God and love Him and serve Him. And we'll receive benedictions like this as we head out into this world to share the good news of Jesus with a lost and dying world. This from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord